0: Hello and welcome to the EnormaCast, this is your host Chris Galoos, it is about noon here in Colorado, August 7th, 2023, and this is episode 268 of the EnormaCast, a conversation with climber, therapist, and a whole bunch of other stuff, Lincoln Stoller. So, Lincoln got in touch with me. He is um, one of the, the therapists that are on the list if you go to the American Alpine Club and decide to use their grief fund. And he wanted to get in touch to sort of talk about that, talk about the grief fund over there at the AAC, something they've set up to provide therapy to people who, you know, primarily lose friends or partners or anyone in the mountains. But you know what? As usual with the Enormacast, and I think as usual with Lincoln, we didn't talk about it that much. We get to it here and there. But this is an old school feeling Enormacast. It's like pure uncut Enormacast. It's old days Enormacast. It's like two guys just uh, chilling by the fire, looking at the stars, passing the metaphorical bottle around because we were not in the same place together, nor were we drinking. But anyhow, it feels like we were doing something. So I want to tell you a little bit about Lincoln. Lincoln is a climber who's been climbing since the early 70s. He has traversed a great deal of history in climbing. He climbed with the likes of Fred Becky, Dougal Haston, George Lowe, John Stannard on the East Coast, and a host of other people. Got really into solo climbing, solo trekking, solo traveling, also paragliding, soar plane pilot, scuba diving. He's a polymath. He earned a PhD in quantum physics under some of the giants of the field. His uh, sort of life pursuits have also veered into computer automation, finance, accounting, music, psychedelics, neurology, brain training, and now, among other things, I guess, I don't even know if I got the full list here. uh, He's a licensed psychotherapist. He has some deep experience in neurofeedback, hypnotherapy, sleep therapy, yeah, yeah. A lot of stuff going on, and the, uh, the conversation today sort of reflects that. And Lincoln also reflects that era of climbing. There were so many climbers that came out of the 70s, late 60s, even back into the 50s that were scientists, were engineers, were math whizzes, and they went on to uh, express that in their lives. You know, George Lowe is an engineer, and some of the great Himalayan climbers were physicists and scientists and things like that, but also, you know, they were prone to these kind of explorations of the mind as well. Climbing for them was this expression of exploration, not just of geography, but also of themselves, which is reflected, I think, in a lot of the writing from that era. I think by contrast, the modern climber is so much more goal-oriented than uh, than these guys were. I don't know why that is, but it feels like we've more so melted it down into this pursuit of fitness you know, pursuit of grades and sometimes pursuit of accolades online and things like that. Not that these guys were immune to that, but it just is a feeling that I have about this era. And that's where Lincoln comes from. So, hope you guys enjoy this uh, very far flung, eclectic conversation. We go from therapy to quantum physics to climbing to Bilbo Baggins and all the way around a few times. So, hope you dig it. Conversation with therapist climber, Lincoln Stoller.
1: So for some reason, it's been interesting, the strange people I've known in climbing, I kind of just tolerated them at the time. But over the years, with some distance and experience with other people, and I should say that now I proudly claim to be a therapist. I think it's a bit of a joke. It's kind of a clown show. But okay, so I got the the big shoes and the rubber nose and uh you know the degrees, and so I think of those people more now, and I think of how oh, they were a little nuts, some of them were a little crazy, some of them were more sane than normal, and I think the most you could say is that climbing played a really important role in everyone's life, and the other thing uh I thought we'd talk about is psychology because psychology it's really poorly represented therapy, counseling, and my attitude is that just like climbing is a way to Amplify your sensibilities and abilities. I think uh, something like counseling or social interaction is too, and they are a lot more in common than they're given credit for. You know, you can fail in both, and you can succeed in both, and there's difficulties in both, and they're obscure, and there are objective dangers, if you like. You know, talk about anybody who's had a you know intimate relationship that's failed. Actually, if you can find anyone who's had an intimate relationship that hasn't failed. And they're almost worse than climbing disasters, uh, you know, the trauma of it all. And then finally, the third thing is that I'm connected to this uh, American Alpine Club Climbers Grief Fund, which was the the reason I reached you. I said, oh, you know, what kind of outreach are we doing? And they basically said not much. So I said, well, you know, let's talk about this. So the Climbers Grief Fund was supposed to be a fund where they give you 600 bucks, if you qualify, to have grief therapy because of a climbing accident. And I kind of thought, well, Gee, isn't that kind of like after the horse got out the barn door kind of thing? So those were the three things that were on my mind, and and since I don't really know who you want as an audience or who you have as an audience, I'll let you take any of those or throw them all away.
0: Okay, sounds good. We, I mean, the audience here is is hardcore climbers, and um, you know, we've had Madeline Sorkin on, who who is a you know part of the progenitor of this grief fund. Um, I actually sat down for um a lengthy interview on that original film that went with it um that was uh, kind of like morbidly comical um in its own weird way because hmm. <laughs> well sounds interesting they, they, well they were um you know they were doing it at the trade show and I, and I think I've told this story on the other podcast but maybe maybe not on this one but you know they were like hey do you want to come in and uh sit down for these interviews that we're doing on film for the grief fund you know like talk a little bit about you know hayden kennedy which was the the thing that was on my mind at, at the time and it still remains probably the most poignant source of grief is in climbing for me so they said yeah come in and and you know you'll sit down for a few minutes and, and it'll be fine and and we'll maybe use it and you know it'll help us promote this thing or whatever so i was like okay i'm friends with madeline let's do this and so you're at the trade show which is like uh you know it's in this convention center sure. it's fluorescent lights those and, things right yeah, right. And you're like, "Hey, how are you? That sounds good. What are you doing?" Like everybody's like hopping around and and having a good time. And so they're like, "Yeah, be at this conference room at like two o'clock or whatever. Um, that's your slot." So I, I go. <laughs> this is why it's comical. It's like I'm like walking down, you know, this beige hallway with like the worst furniture ever and stuff. I'm yes, like, right, "Where's this room?" And I'm like, "Okay." Here it is and there's this guy there and like oh are you Chris I'm like yeah yeah I'm ready and he's like okay come on in and they open the door and it's like pitch black everybody's got hushed voices and it's like and they got a you know the the back screen and they've got the the camera set up and they're like okay here you know this is we're going to do it here and you're going to sit here and look you know look over here and we're going to ask you some questions
1: and then and basically like I went oh, right, from the right. most not. Right, I remember not, yeah. I remember the climbing video it, it's like yeah. how did they do this you know it's All very stark and black and white with sharp shadows. Okay, so that yeah. was you, right?
0: Yeah, so it was, but it was inside that freaking center in Denver, like the yeah. least, you know, Personally, comforting place yeah. in the world. And uh, so a hospital and so emergency
1: I, room would have been worse, but go ahead. Yeah,
0: exactly. You're exactly right. But it, it was a, a similar vibe. Yeah, right. Um, but yeah, so anyway, that, that was like, I've told, I, I've told that story with, with Marilyn and I like, I walked in thinking like, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm good to talk about this. Like it's been a while, and you know, in my head, I was like, yeah, I've, I've dealt with this stuff, and Mm -hmm. you know, and I, I, it's like I just bawled for, you know, twenty minutes on tape. For Um, them? Oh yeah, it was. I couldn't, you know, as soon as they started asking me about it, I just lost it. Yeah, yeah. So, so what it revealed was that I had not. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I had not dealt with my grief, and I still haven't. I, I had a. I had a moment uh, in Lander this summer where um, I was doing a presentation and, and brought a picture of Hayden up on the screen, and I got the whole room to cry pretty much, wow. so, you know, so it was good entertainment, oh, we're but in the at right, my expense. Yeah. We're in the so, right
1: place here, okay.
0: <laughs> so anyway, as, as maybe that's let's start there. You, you got yeah. in touch with me because of your connection to the Grief Fund. Um, you're, you're volunteering counseling for that is what I understood from your email. That's right. Um, as, as someone who is a climber, um, deeply in, in climbing actually at one point And, uh, so I have a perspective on that. So, but you also talked about, and maybe previewed it just now about how you're trying to change the, um, a little bit of the direction or, or the purpose of the grief fund, yeah. um, but we can go a lot deeper into uh, yeah. me if you want. <laughs> I mean no, I might that, have to pay I might have to pay you afterwards,
1: but uh, yeah right.
0: <laughs> you know, for a session. But well, I'll give you the family
1: rate. But Yeah, cool. <laughs> perfect. But, but yeah, let's uh, yeah, I I think there are two paths here. I and the reason I say that is because I've never had that much grief with regard to all the people who've died in climbing. I don't even have that much grief with regard to my parents who died. Uh not actually in my presence, but within an hour of my being present. And so I I have a relationship to death that might be unusual. I don't really know because nobody really talks about it. And it has to do with one's own relationship to life, you know, your own mortality and what you're willing to risk and how you dealt with your own close calls. And I put myself out there as a therapist for grief, but I haven't, I, I actually have not had a client come to me for grief per se. But I can say, you know, as a therapist, I have had some really fucked up people come to me. Actually, they're not fucked up people. They're on the mend, but their lives were just, oh, you know, I'd rather have a climbing accident than their life because, you know, it's almost as bad as you can imagine. Depends on what you can imagine. But anyhow, so uh, I'd be interested to know where your head's at. Well, there's one thing, there's one little bit of of information
0: that's, I think, pertinent, and I almost forget it sometimes, is that Hayden H.K., Uh, he didn't pass in a climbing accident. He actually took his own life. And so, but it was related to an accident that, you know, killed his girlfriend at the time that was skiing related, Mm -hmm. but he then out of his own guilt and grief over the accident, just hours later took his own life. And I've had, I've had not as close to people, but, um, you know, I've been, close enough to to people who passed away in in the mountains and it it didn't affect me the same way and mm-hmm. um he's a, he was much younger than me so there was sort of a mentor kid kind oh, of I quality see. between our yeah. our uh, yeah i think there's you know those are factors that made it different and i forget it because he did so much he did so much dangerous climbing and he you know he climbed in the Himalayas you know serious routes that won awards for because of their audacity and things like that so we were used to him leaving and and maybe not coming back mm. or whatever. Interesting. But then this whole twist. Yeah, very um, you know, interesting. Yeah, so so I don't know. If it's Well, I've known be, a
1: lot of climbers who were yeah. who were borderline suicidal. And, no, I wouldn't say they're borderline. They were suicidal and they killed sure. themselves. Although the mountain was the gun, they pulled the trigger. So I can appreciate where you might have been taken. But I wasn't that close to these people.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. I mean, I was close enough to know them, but. They didn't open up to me, right. so I I watched them from a distance. And then some of them are just, you know, bad luck, accidents. Right, but They're almost all avalanches, but some avalanches are more predictable than others. I think the
0: thing that's in, interesting in, in some of the, the parts of, you know, some of the things you laid out to me uh, before we got together here, you know, was sort of the differences or maybe the specifics of who climbers are and how things like depression might affect them differently right. or yeah um, i I'm you know being yeah. some of these phrases i read were like risk taking spectrum high reward spectrum yeah um so maybe we could get a little bit into yeah. your thoughts on on the climbing community as a whole sort of as a psychological evaluation around around their lives and and the choices that they make that may lead them to you know seeking help from someone like you or or someone something like the grief fund which you're hoping i think to change the name of uh, to maybe resilience or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he
1: told me not to say that because I guess, okay. you know, the director has the right. right to do that. But everyone's I'll saying, that it. so I think, <laughs> okay, no, I, <laughs> no, I, you know, it's in the air, right? Uh, it's just not mine to do. So, and you know, the Climber's Grief Fund was created to address grief, so it has a momentum in that direction. And this effort to broaden it is a secondary effort, which may not have as much momentum behind it. Um, so let me, let me put out some ideas that are just preliminary for the things you suggested. One is that when you start climbing, the time of the climbing community or the structure of the climbing community at the time you start climbing has changed over the decades. So the environment I started in was very much a, a kind of do-it-yourself environment. There weren't climbing gyms. Uh, there were very few climbing guide services And I don't know if there were any rock climbing, which is the usual introduction to the sport, services. I mean, I I knew that like Royal Robins had something, but that was in California and I was in New York. And uh, I did get involved with a Boy Scout Explorers Club branch that went climbing at the Schwangunks just because I was looking for a way to have climbing partners. Not because I was part of their club and I never was part of their club. Uh, And I've never really been part of anybody's club. And that's probably typical of climbers, or at least it was at the time. But over the decades, there has become climbers and gyms and guide services and more books and and climbing stores have facilitated uh, seminars and workshops. and, And so it's kind of gone more mainstream, right? And then you've got competitions. We didn't have competitions when I started in 1970. What? Two? One? I don't know. And the way people learned at that time was through their social group. So, I went to the Gunks, and there were all these little social groups, and you felt like an outsider. It was like being on the playground with little groups, and you didn't know kind of the hand signals to be in on the inn with these different people and uh the way the gunks work is interesting because everybody wanders around at the base, passing each other, but no one really talks to each other, sort of like the american neighborhood and uh you know there's the climbing shop and then there's the local restaurant, but there wasn't really any structure beyond that uh one of my favorite Elements was the local park ranger. There's always always a park ranger, right? And so he made a, a structure because we'd always hiding from him, because we weren't allowed to camp. But of course, we always did, because we didn't have a car. So we'd always like break camp before dawn and hide the tent, because he's going to be around looking for us. And that went on for like ten years until we finally became friends. And it was, a, it was a big joke. And uh like other people I've climbed with, have always been averse to the park rangers, and it's always been a mixed thing. But that may have changed, too. And so it depends. Like, if you're climbing in Yosemite, there's a whole different scene than if you're climbing in New Hampshire. And then what if you come from Milwaukee? I don't know what happens. There are people who come from Milwaukee. They're in the climbers, the volunteers in the Climbers Grief Fund, all from everywhere, or from BC. So I moved to BC now because I thought I really liked the area, but I'm finding I'm not getting out enough because I'm busy being my various things, incarnations, you know, it still takes a whole weekend to go climbing. You can't like do it, you know, in the afternoon before sunset, unless you go to a climbing gym. And I'm not into gyms. So uh, when you talk about this mentality of climbers, I'm not sure I know, I think it would have to be a one-on-one question. What sort of psychological thing could climbers use? Uh, Because my friend Peter went to those, uh, what was it, Teton Climbing Film Festival, was it? Or was it another one? and said that he saw that Climber's Grief Fund intro video, and he and everybody else thought, so what? And I felt, well, yeah, that's what I would expect. Unless you have grief, you say, so what? I don't have grief. And we both thought that the video sort of missed addressing the audience. So I think that's a question. Yeah, we could talk about grief. And yeah, if you have grief, you'd understand what it is to look for help if you don't have grief i would say maybe you could use some help anyhow cuz a lot of people i know that have grief they had grief before it was, wasn't the same grief they you know they were struggling before they would think they were heroic maybe but i thought they were kind of nuts they did some crazy things and so did i some crazy things although it's considered heroic i was always uncomfortable with if being a hero in climbing is you know drawing a straight flush in cards what are my chances so you get all these stories of people doing heroic things and you're thinking, shit, they only missed getting chopped by a small piece of luck. So I, I, this is what makes me feel there should be some talk about why we're doing this. Maybe we're not getting the best out of the experience. And then, you know, the typical thing is that, oh, it's such a high, let's go back and do it next weekend. And if you keep doing that, oh, you know, okay, let's do harder. Let's do harder. Let's do sketchier. And I mean, sooner or later, you're, you're just, your survival chances and your Your grief possibilities start to work against you. And that shouldn't have happened. I wanted to see like more climbers become leaders because we have this, this is what I identify with climbing, commitment and consequences. We as climbers learn commitment and consequences better than most people. We learn to live with them and to have them. Commitment. Um, One of my big mistakes in relationships was I expected that the women I got involved with would be as committed as the climbers I climbed with. And I think that's also a mistake in business, that your partners will be as committed (laughs) because they're not.
0: The psychological issues of being enabled, strengthened, supported.
1: Yeah, right. What, what What did you mean by that? I don't know exactly what I meant at the time I wrote it. But now if you say it, I think of family and childhood. Those are the things that got me involved in climbing. I didn't feel enabled. I didn't feel strong, and I didn't feel supported. I didn't feel that in my family. I didn't feel it in my school. I didn't feel it in my, you know, small social circle. And climbing provided that. Uh, it was a little sketchy at first. I had to find, find connections that I related to and ways to go climbing. I was only 13 at the start. But that's okay. That's about the time when you start to say, hey, you know, I'm a human being that that is not going to live under my parents' wings for the rest of my life, and uh, what do I make of this? situation my answer i think most answers of 13 year old kids would be this is uh either it's fucked up or i'm just going to keep my head down and continue playing online games with my friends until hell freezes over um but sooner or later you wake up that uh there is got to be a reason why seven billion adults act like idiots and take the world you know to hell in a handcart and uh I think the answer to that question is go climbing, because then you understand commitment and responsibility and uh, consequences. Because if you don't, you're going to get uh, a rock between the eyes, which is worse than a slap, maybe. Maybe. I mean, you get slapped by your parents, and it's pretty bad. And almost, it's almost easier to get a rock between the eyes, as long as it's a small rock. Because then you think, oh, I fucked up. You, you know, I climbed with Fred Becky a lot. He was like always the butt of our jokes, because he was always turning tail and running at the slightest risk, we thought. And he would look at us and sneer because he survived. And uh, most uh, everybody else didn't, at least in my circle. They didn't realize that uh, being in the mountains was more important than succeeding in their climb. And he thought being in the mountains was more, he was like, you know, Emerson or Thoreau. He was poetic about the whole thing. Most of the routes he pioneered were crappy routes. They were the safest, easiest routes to the, you know, unclimbed summit. And uh, if weather didn't look good, I remember him telling us, I've been here before. I know this weather's going to get bad. We've got to get out of here. And of course, the weather was fine. You know, it cleared up. And we thought, oh, Fred, you asshole. It was our one chance. And we blew it. But he didn't care because he climbed all the time. And he'd be just be back, you know, again. And I, I kind of learned a lot from that. It didn't sink in at first. But, you know, after I had other obligations and uh, saw other benefits from it besides Summiting, so there are lots of things to benefit from climbing. I think he, taking that apart is an interesting thing. You know what? What is it that you're getting out of this? People say, "Why do you climb?" It's a big joke, you know. But I think it's a reasonable question for each person to ask anyway. You know, what are you getting out of this? And uh, where does it take you? And uh, what are you going to do with what you get out of it? Are you Just going to do it over and over again? Become an athlete? I mean, I was never interested in that. athletics. Seemed like pointless to win the game. I, I had to have something to take home from it all. And climbing did give me that, although well, I wasn't quite sure what it gave me. Glad to be alive kind of thing. It gives you that.
0: Mm-hmm. You uh, hit on something that I hear a lot about in, in this podcast when I'm talking to climbers. And again, you, you know, the generations are different, but this idea of, you know, alienation, I think, comes up in this podcast a lot uh, in terms of, of just normal life, um, especially as a young person. Like you said, you were th- 13. Um, that comes up in here Not not fitting in. Um Which is kind of an easier way to say that, um, not sort of buying what you've what you're being told by the authorities is another, another theme that comes up in this um as far as climbers that found it in one way or the other they weren't they just basically weren't down with what they were being fed in school or by their parents or yeah. um in, in in any such way and um I mean psychologically speaking, it seems to be a bit of a profile again again, maybe from a little bit earlier generation generally. But, uh, it's, it's sort of fascinating that that came up in, in your own story.
1: So why did you start climbing and what do you get out of it?
0: Yeah. I mean, the same thing. I I was, I felt, uh, I felt sort of like not in the right place. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago and, and, um, I enjoyed myself, I guess. I mean, I had friends. I wasn't some, you know, sort of sulking kid in my, my, uh, room wondering what was me, but but uh, I found this connection a little bit later on in high school to the outdoors. And I think one of the things that happened to me was that uh, you were just talking about getting out from underneath your parents' wings. We would go on these backpacking trips, and it happened to be with a with a gym teacher that was at our school. He would run these things on the weekends, and it was all done through the school um, as like a outdoor program. But one of the interesting things he would do, and we were, gosh, we probably weren't even 13 if you're in seventh grade. That was the first time I went. 12. is he would yeah. he would actually drop us off in the middle of the night um at at the trailhead and part of his thing was that you were going to find your own way to where we were camping and this is like suburban kids and I you know I sort of have a hunting and fishing family but didn't participate in it a ton so I wasn't like completely out of my element but you know to be on this trip to begin with first time probably without my, our parents as supervisors and this, this guy, his name was Walter Sitz. Um, I still remember him. I, I, I sort of owe him a lot. Yeah, he would literally, we. it was in Wisconsin, you know, so we're not like in the wilderness. But it, at night, you don't see anything. And he would drop us off at the edge of the road where the trail started. And he'd say, okay, you're going to follow this trail. And there's these signs. And I will see you in like two and a half hours. And I mean, this would be at like 10 o'clock at night because <laughs> we had driven up there. It just felt so wild and so exhilarating and so thrilling. Yeah. that it it was. I mean, it was formative, and we got addicted to it. And little, I I went on to find out, you know, because I, I became friends with them as an adult. Um, that yeah, he was there. He would he would follow us along. He could, you know, we'd just stand in the woods and we'd walk right past him, kind of a thing, because we were allowed little kids with flashlights and stuff. And but we felt as though like the whole world was, I mean, I just remember this feeling of like, we could do anything. This is it. Like, you know, in the daytime, you'd see that we we're hundreds of yards from farmer's fields. You know, this particular park kind of wound its way through, but we felt like we, I mean, it could have been, you know, whatever Mount Everest. I don't care. No, I so, know what you mean. I know. Yeah. And I, and, and, and that just like, I mean, that steered me towards moving to Colorado and then, you know, it's kind of sucked the adventure out of that. You know, as I grew up, I kind of, you know, I realized, well, that wasn't, you know, we weren't really necessarily adventuring. It just felt like it. And so now, now that I'm an adult, I still want that feeling. And so where, where does that feeling come from as an adult? Well, it's got to get more real and it's got to have consequences, as you said. And so it steered itself toward climbing, but. I really feel like it started on those nights, um, on mm-hmm. those trips when I was whatever, probably ten, eleven. I don't know what you are when you're seven, in seventh grade,
1: yeah, maybe eleven, twelve. Yeah. So, what do you think other people would say? How how are most people starting climbing, and why are they doing it these days? Can you answer that fairly? I mean, I think you. I
0: think it's. Again, within the the context of our podcast, of the podcast, it's changed too. And and you're absolutely right about the gyms being a, a fascinating kind of shift because again, older generations, you're right. It's it's clearly was I want to find this specific tribe that feels the way I do about the outdoors and about about society and you know, I don't think it's it's a little bit uh, you know, blown up the whole anti um establishment nature of like the the uh stone masters in the 70s and stuff like that but it's part of it mm-hmm. and i think that the the shift has been that a lot of people find climbing anyway as the almost the opposite of that as like within a, a team at a climbing gym or uh, a social scene at a climbing gym kind of has a different vibe to it it's more of like a belonging and creating this like. Wider social scene, but the thing that I always kind of fascinates me is who goes through that is either a kid on a team, um, you know, where their parents are sort of driving them or their coaches are sort of driving them. Who who maintains who stays in it afterwards and becomes an independent person still seeking climbing and and leaving kind of mm. the fold and all that. I, I still think it they they are seeking a community they want. Feel as though they're, I think, a little different. That they're achieving something that's that's sort of beyond the the normal existence that we're sort of fed. I, I feel like that's kind of the the through line as people get outdoors and and become their own climbers after learning in a gym and things like that. Who are, and that's mostly the people I talk to. So whether it feels as radical as it once did, um, is kind of the question because I think. In your era, becoming a rock climber was a much more radical idea than than it would be today, right? Um, in most places around the world.
1: But I think there's kind of a there's two tiers. There's the social tier, the team sport ethic, the uh, rating game, where it provides you with some container and some guidance and some support. And, and if you just lived in the gym, you'd have you know, the reputation of certain climbs and climbers and, and, and you would work at this and you'd say, well, that climb requires you to have certain upper body strength and you'd like go and build that. And then there would be questions, which I've never, I've always found this interesting. Like I never, I can't even remember this. So there's red pointing and then there's all these other points about, you know, going with the protection in or leading or t- And it's like, we always led on site first sight, protect yourself. That was like all there was to it. Anything else would have been, Gymnastic. And I remember seeing a few people starting the gymnastic idea where they would work on a climb for weeks, you know, and the protection would be in and they'd be just working for weeks to try to get over this crux in a group, right? A guy would try, another guy would try it, and they'd, you know, yo yo up and down. And I thought, boy, that's so kind of weird, you know, because our approach was, you know, it's first sight, leading, protected yourself, and then it's done. And then another tier above that, which we were still trying to figure out, was doing first ascents of these things. Because that seemed a little beyond us, a little more than we could deal with, because we couldn't be assured of anything. But eventually, I got into doing first ascents, and it is a different thing. And you can't grade yourself in the same way when right. you're doing a first ascent. There's just too much, too much mind in it. Too, you know, too much mindset. Well, I think
0: that's some of the pillars like that. We. And, you know, and I I also, I'm not, I haven't been in the game as long as you have, but I was, I was, uh, you know, I started pre-sport climbing, um, bolts were just kind of appearing around Colorado anyway. Um, and it was a controversial thing to be putting bolts in from above and all that sort of thing and Mm -hmm. and definitely pre-gyms. But I think a lot of this, this ethic that we kind of as older climbers revere, it still exists in alpinism. in. You know, move, move, not necessarily 8,000 meter peaks, but but the sort of purest forms of alpinism, which sounds a little bit elitist. But it, it's interesting. I've been thinking about this lately, actually, is that it still is that that's all in there because it's still a smaller subset of the climbing community. You are definitely on your own. And when you talked about consequences and making decisions and all those sorts of things, it's all those things still remain very poignant and very real while most of the like thrill of sport climbing, let's say, is is all just, you know, fear. It's not actual danger necessarily. So and then, you know, and it's a small group of people and it still, I think, has a lot of these sort of misfits and and people seeking something beyond what society has given them and and uh, you know, thinking of uh you probably don't pay super close attention, but you know, Colin Haley has been this guy who's you know, he soloed Serratore in winter, this winter, and he just also, he just soloed um, another incredible route on on uh, El Shaltan. And, uh, you know, he, he represents that thing that we all used to kind of revere, I think.
1: Yeah, I think now that's really fucked up. I can't exactly say why, and I maybe he's like <laughs> shitting on Jesus, but I really think that's, I think it's fucked up. I, I remember I, I well, was... Well, which part of it? Taking those that we've risks. we that? Taking oh, those taking risks. those risks. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's like overdosing of heroin and feeling like you're a hero because you survived. I remember I was, I uh, climbed with Charlie Fowler once or twice or something. And I said to him, boy, you know, this rock climbing and crampons really spooks me out. I'm glad, you know, I've got a rope on. And he said, oh man, you know, I'd rather just solo it. I just, you know, get rid of this rope. And so his attitude toward... Rock climbing in crampons, which I think is like a, a nightmare. You know, front pointing up rock. Oh, God, you know, talk about, you can't feel shit. But he thought it was liberating. And he went on and free soloed a whole ton of intense alpine climbs. And then he eventually, you know, got buried in an avalanche. I remember my friend Peter said, but he lived the way he wanted to. And I thought, is that how he wanted to live? Under an avalanche? He could have like fallen off any of these you know, extremely difficult alpine climbs, which he free soloed, but he didn't. I, I did a little free soloing, and I look back at it and I, I'm I'm horrified now. I have like PTSD, but I didn't have the trauma at the time because I you can't otherwise you're, you're you're toast. Uh, and I did learn that. You know, I learned how to control my mind. I guess I'm glad I learned, but I you know now think I I, I was okay with killing myself, but I would have killed my kids too because I wouldn't have had them. And they wouldn't be here. And that would have been my fault. And I don't feel good about that. But I couldn't have foreseen that then, really. Even if you'd talked to me about it, it wouldn't have meant anything. Are you getting something that you can put in the bank from this experience? I don't mean money. I mean, you know, character. Are are you getting character development that's really lifting you up? Are you just getting a hit? Because I remember we climbed Mount McKinley, and that was a big deal for us. And I remember getting off that thing and, like, sinking to my knees when I got out of the airplane, thinking, grass, I haven't seen this in six weeks. I haven't seen a living fucking thing for six weeks. I'm so glad to be back on wet earth with grass. I I think that's more memorable, as as memorable as anything that went on in the climb. And it it made me think, like, do I have to go through that just to sink, sink down on my knees to worship grass? And I thought about, you know, the other people I'd known and the ones that did or didn't survive and why, which I never really kind of knew, and what the troubles they were. I climbed with, uh, we climbed with Johnny Waterman, who may not be well-known now, but he was incredibly well-known for his insanity at the time. He soloed many things, one of which was Mount Hunter. I think it took him like six months alone, and he was nuts. I mean, I could go on for the things he did, and eventually he couldn't get enough of a charge out of climbing, so he just headed off up Mount McKinley with a backpack in the winter, and a bag of oatmeal, and that was less than anybody heard of him. And if that didn't kill him, the next thing would have. And so I'm thinking, you know, I compare that to like some of the great alpinists, who who did similar crazy things and survived, and who we, you know, think of heroically. And I just sort of wonder, well, what are you getting out of this? And is it really growing you, or is it just feeding the demon?
0: You know, you you mentioned climbing steadily for about three decades. And and I'm not sure what what you practice now, um, but also that you you know you've done a lot of other things in your life. So you talk about like the heroin hit or or someone who's who's you know just going harder and harder and harder. Your life's been a little bit like that in, in your own way. I mean, you fly. Talked about plane crashes. Um, you know, it sounded like you flew gliders or something like that. Yeah, and then two crashes. and then you've also had like a, a pretty eclectic academic career at least pursuing yeah a bunch of crashes in that from, one too yeah yeah a PhD in quantum physics to exploring multiple types of therapy. Yeah yeah um psychedelic therapy. So let's talk about you for a second. You know, what satisfied you in climbing and what did you have times when you were like I am no longer getting anything out of this and, and it's time to step back from it or you know, how did you make those decisions in your own life?
1: I think a person sort of titrates the risk for themselves. I like the exhilaration. I didn't like the suffering. I can think of a few insufferable people. I didn't like the insufferable people that I encountered. I had one climbing partner who did most of my climbing with me. And uh, we didn't live nearby, but we I think we met each other, you know, through, at the cliffs through some thing. And then we just bonded and we always go climbing together. And we do expeditions together. Uh, I think he said to me, you know, you're like the brother I never had. And since I was kind of like an only child, wasn't really, but felt like it, I kind of felt like he was the brother I never had. And so that fraternity was really important. And then, you know, when I went climbing with other people, I felt, you know, Fred, Becky was an example of somebody who also, he's a little odd, personally, but he really was uh, looking for a fraternity too, so nature and and kind of a spiritual bond. And his sexuality was always in question. And I think, as I've understood better people's sexuality, it's, it's okay to have it in question. And it doesn't really need to be answered. And his was never answered. I've talked to a number of people who knew him quite well. They couldn't figure out. You know, so we talk about heroin and sex and climbing. There's a certain thing about climbing that appeals to climbers that they get more out of it. And they're, wor- and they're willing to sacrifice the other things, even life, to continue to get climbing's charge. So I, I like the excitement. I remember, you know, climbing El Cap at 17, spinning around in the air, you know, at the top of El Cap where it gets really steep. It was exciting. You know, at the end of a long rope, jumering up with nothing around you. You know, you're like 20 feet out from the wall and 3,000 feet off the valley floor. That was exciting. It was it was like parachuting. I did parachute jumping once because I didn't think the second time would ever live up to the first time. Like I said, I didn't like the suffering, I like the excitement. But then getting to the summit was always kind of a letdown. It's like I felt like I walked into a Beatrix Potter story. You know, they're bunnies and butterflies. And like, where's the climb? It's gone. It's behind me. I wanted to get off it. Did I want to get off it? I, I had, was having a good time while I was on it. And, and then the disasters or near disasters. Uh, There's this big wall. I don't remember what wall. wall No, wall face? Cannon Mountain? I don't know. I don't remember where we were. Somewhere in upstate New York. Big wall got benighted on the wall. Ended up walking down in the dark. It was one of those awfully dark nights that's uh, overcast and new moon. Couldn't see shit. Didn't have overnight gear. And then a few times we just walked off the edge of these little cliffs and we realized we can't see anything. We got to stop. And we just lay down and slept in our shorts. And I've had to sleep in worse places, but until the sun came up and we could see where we were. And I remember that, like, that was an adventure. And it was like formative to me and important, even though it was technically a mistake. I don't even remember the climb. I just remember the the attempted descent and the navigating it. So what I got out of it was a, a feeling of uh, strength, you know, a feeling, a, a touching, like touching touching the void, you know, that Joe Simpson book. Although that story is like even worse if you ever read it. Um, But I still feel we touch the void a little bit. And it almost may be looking to touch the void is why we climb. I And I was always a little ambivalent about the circular nature of it, you know, having to go back and do more. It makes perfect sense if you're doing gym climbing and you're working up the grades. Okay, I'm getting better. I'm doing better. You could be better at business. You could be better at cards. You could be better at sports, climbing. But when it comes with taking higher and higher risks, it's a slightly different game. And uh, I was always ambivalent about that. I guess in my mind I felt... I should have something to live for, and as I progressed in climbing, I felt I did have something to live for, and then at some point I felt I'm overlooking what I have to look for live, to live for by keeping doing this. So then you have an accident, and then there's grief, and you're saying, well, well, where were you for the last four years? You know, didn't you see this coming? And for some people, okay, you couldn't have seen it coming because it was a rock that fell from nowhere. Okay, I, I get it. But usually there's some responsibility. You know, I say this in therapy when people come to me with uh, liver problems or lung problems. I say, well, did you see it coming? Is there something you did that made it happen? Is there something you're doing that's keeping it happening? And what are you getting out of it? Because there's usually a a hidden answer to all those questions that people don't want to look at. And, you know, people who've survived cancer say, ironically, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And you say, that's nuts because you can't really understand it. So climbing is like that except you really have your hand on the steering wheel. You can go into it and out of it. It's yonder your control, even the risks. If somebody gets chopped, you know, it's they're going to be plenty if I told you so. And especially you're going to feel guilty if you told you so. So I stopped climbing pretty much. Uh you know, you can't kind of go halfway in climbing. It, it just it's like eating cold oatmeal or something. It just if it doesn't have the thrill, you should go on to something else, I think. So I went on to do another somewhat stupid things, like, you know, sore plane flying, which is not so stupid on its face, but you can do it stupidly if you're me. And uh, the way I did it stupidly was I didn't quite give it enough attention. Flying needs a lot of attention because there's a lot of, you know, what you call um, nature's unpredictability in it. And so that's why I had accidents. They were... Unpredictable accidents that could have been avoided. You know, that's an interesting combination. And I tried scuba diving and so forth. And I have to watch it as a person that I don't get too uh, high risk when I'm, I kind of dismiss risk. And I'll do things that I will quickly regret. It's really interesting to have experiences with people. I learned, you don't ever know if you're learning your own fantasy, but I went to the International School of Mountaineering when I was 16. And Dougal Haston ran the school, and he eventually died because he took too many chances. He was a reckless skier and he got buried in an avalanche. But his problem was that he was also a classic Scottish drunk, and he had murdered a family in a car accident and uh, eventually had to atone for that with his own life. And having known him a little bit, you could sort of see it very extreme personality. So I'm not saying all climbers are, but I think it's an opportunity to become extreme. And I always tell people in therapy, go for it, you know, jump over the guardrail with care, with a parachute. You know, I had a client this morning and they were saying, we fight. And I said, great, you're fighting. You're fighting isn't the problem. It's how you're not resolving it. That's the problem. Your fighting is like climbing. I'm getting into the conquest. I'm getting into the conflict. It's like climbing, but they do it with each other. And I said, "Well, the problem is that you're not successfully concluding the climb." Sort of. The, the metaphor is a little sketchy, but anyway. Uh, so those are sort of my answers to your questions, and now you can answer them yourself.
0: Why? Why do I? I still climb. I still love it. <laughs> All right. So, I haven't left it behind. So, so yeah.
1: where do you? Uh, you know, do you find <laughs> yourself drawing a line, or are you clear and comfortable with the risks you take?
0: I mean, I'm, I've been very conscious. Of how I have stepped away from risk um speaking of having a kid i i've that's part of it is I have a child he's he's almost seven um but also I just have felt it and I've talked to other people on the show about this too of as as I've aged and and I believe it to be i believe it to be a little understanding of consequences but also fatigued by them um and again we talked about. You know, ha- having tragedies around us or being involved in them, you know, where you see the tragedy or you see the consequences. Let's just say that enough times. I just, yeah, I, I, it, I, it's a little bit of what you're saying. It's like you, you're sort of tired of it, and so thinking of yourself setting that up for your family, for uh, your friends, for anything like that. It's a little bit, yeah. It's just like I, I, you see it coming. I'm going to try to avoid it anymore. When I didn't ever think about that when I was younger and I climb very risky climbs as well. I was never a major free soloist, but as many people listen to the show, I climb really difficult, supposedly very dangerous aid climbing on El Cap and things like that. And so none of that stuff happens anymore. I'm a, I'm a go have fun with my friends, sport climber. And, you know, I may be from somebody looking on the outside in, I'm still taking risks. Just going climbing is taking a risk, but I feel like I keep it Pretty under control, and occasionally track climb or climb big routes. But, um, but I just yeah, I, I'm I'm a little tired by it all, <laughs> to be honest with you. And the thought of the even if I didn't die myself, the the exhaustion and the 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 weight of what could happen is I think really apparent to me at fifty two and thirty years in climbing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the couple I was counseling this morning with all their fighting and resolving issues, partly. I don't really know, but partly seemed to have its roots in the guy who I don't exactly know the details. He walked in to wake up his father when he was nine years old and found his father was dead. And if you can try to imagine how that affects you as a nine-year-old, you could appreciate how he felt, and it uh, derailed his whole life. You might think, with the right support and perspective, you could get over that, but it definitely—he hasn't gotten really on the rails again, and he's still feeling whatever it was. Guilt, remorse, abandonment. So you can understand, you know, it's not really, it's not really climber's grief, it's just grief. Could have come from anywhere. It could have been a natural death. And it definitely can come from your parents, your family, your friends, or your pets. It kind of depends on what bond you make. And if you don't make any bond, then that's a problem too. I have people who can't bond, and nothing ever works out in their life, because everything's temporary. And and other people feel that. Everything falls apart and they abandon everyone because they have no commitment or whatever. I don't know how you want to describe it. Um, you know, they're protecting themselves. You could always sort of rationalize it. And maybe you have to. Hmm. You know, one thing I do as a therapist, well, I do it. I don't know if therapists do it, is to uh, take people into trance. So this is interesting. So these are trance states. You definitely feel them when you're free soloing you know you have to be 99.99% focused on the present and maybe 1/1000th of a percent focused on the weather but that's got to be settled before you start and so these people who free solo alpine peaks I don't know about them they they've got to have more on their minds but when i free solo i'm all in to what's happening in front of me i'm hyper sensitive to the climb and it almost becomes hyper rewarding I put uh, 1000% into it and I get a 1000% return and I can see how that could be addicting but it also comes at a cost of risk which if you have a lot to live for might not be acceptable and the reason that I did this and I suspect though that's a projection on my part that other people who free solo might do it is because they don't have a sense of future life They're living in the present, and they're getting the rewards from the present. And the risks are the ones that they take and accept in the present. But like I say, you know, they're not thinking about their children who might not be born. Although that seems a little ridiculous. If you have a child, it's a real thing. If you died eight years ago, your seven-year-old would not be alive today. And it would be your fucking fault. You would have taken the risk, and they and you would have paid for it. And it all, it seems a little, you know, too just abstract, but it's sort of true. Um, And uh, that's one of the things that keeps me from taking risks now. And, and, you know, my memory of, of Fred and the people who, you know, Charlie and many of the others who let the risks get the better of them. Fred didn't, but Charlie did. And my friend Peter, who also contained the risks and is alive and his partners. His book was called The Breaking Point, where they did uh, Hunter. I think that was the, yeah, that was the name of his book. We had actually gone to try that route, and it was my fault that we didn't. I said, no, I'm going home. I don't like the situation. And they all held it against me. And for, like, the whole four-day trip back down the highway, nobody would talk to each other, or especially they wouldn't talk to me. But, okay, so I I just felt I had to make a stand for what I felt was too much at the time. I mean, because, you know, when you're in a group, everybody's got to have your confidence. You got to be confident in the group. And I wasn't. If it's a two-person team or three-person team, or if you're alone, it's a different set of energies. I don't know. I'm trying to get back to who we're talking to. If we're talking to people who are climbers, I would say you're creating a lot of fuel, and there's a lot of energy, and there's a lot of opportunity. And if you're overlooking it by just repeating the pattern over and over, you're not really getting the most out of it. Sooner or later, you're going to get old, and you're not going to be able to climb five twelve. Or if you stu- you know, even you know a couple of weekends of no practice, and uh, you won't be up to speed. And what are the other things? So maybe you're not sacrificing the life of your future children, but maybe you're sacrificing the life of uh, a future sport. Like I got into scuba diving. I got into flying airplanes, paragliders. There's always skiing and snowboarding and Nordic skiing. And one of the things I like to do is uh, go hiking by myself. The point I'm trying to make is the more you think about this stuff and the less you sort of go at it headlong, which is sort of what the sort of the, the social scene encourages us to do. Just follow, you know, we'll lead you forward into the rewards and the topography. And if you uh, take personal responsibility to make it your own experience, it a little more psychedelic. And I would use that word. I, uh, one other thing I did, which I think climbers should do, I think every climber should be required to spend three days alone in a tent without leaving by themselves. Those are the most intense. It's like Vipassana meditation. You go crazy after 72 hours. Uh, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But it makes you think that you actually didn't need any of this stuff to have these experiences. And that's a, that gives me pause. And I think that should give everybody pause. You don't need any physical experience to have a mental one, given enough time and disengagement. And if you want a quick lesson of that, just take LSD. But uh, that doesn't give you as much power as if you do it with sensory deprivation and isolation. You know, go sleep in a cave for three days. And you can't, right? You can only sleep for so much. And then you're just there hallucinating for the next two days. And so I think of that. That seems to me like climbing in a funny kind of way.
0: Let's talk back about the... um whatever it is, the, it's still called the grief fund, yeah. whatever it's going to become. Right. Um, you volunteer for that. So I, I have you engaged with, um with clients through that program uh, in terms of, have you been approached or are you advising? What's your, what's your role in terms of that?
1: There are 80 volunteers who are licensed therapists in different states for certain, but I don't think license or licensure doesn't mean that much in therapy. It's just sort of, it means you took, course and read 24 books and uh to varying degrees have some experience and those 80 people have agreed to provide therapy for the amount that the climbers grief fund awards grants which is six hundred dollars i don't know how much therapy i'm supposed to provide but i guess enough right and to, to to say the truth grief therapy is pretty focused so you probably don't need to go on forever if you're any good at it anyhow so uh you apply to the AAC and I think it's fairly broad they don't, they say you don't have to have grief over a death but I think it's supposed to be related to climbing in some way so it should have climbing in it and it should have grief in it and this is actually interesting because almost all therapy goes in some perpendicular direction the reason you get involved with it is the trigger but what is underneath the trigger is the whole reservoir the whole aquifer of your life it goes in all sorts of directions sort of like you know percolates through through the uh, substratum of your reality into your family and your legacy and your experiences and your subconscious. It goes all sorts of other directions. So I think, you know, that's the best thing about grief. Or anything that gets you going is that where you get to afterwards, you're not really there to resolve the grief. You're there to become a better person and more capable and more able. What you don't want to do is the same limited thing that you've been doing. So if it's been avoiding death, that's one thing. It's, it's been taking unnecessary risks, which could be climbing, could be drugs, could be relationship. You want to get to the next step. The next step, you know, evolution isn't always straightforward. It's not always to the better. You may have more shit to go through. It may be deeper shit. But one hopes, one likes to think that things get better. Maybe they do. You know, one of my problems is that I like to see things get better. But that may be not what people need. I do sleep therapy. Well, sleep therapy almost leads to things that are worse. Because why are you not sleeping? Usually because you got some problem that hasn't been addressed. So the therapy turns into a much more serious thing. It's not just about keeping your feet warm and taking a warm bath and not drinking coffee at eleven at night, which you'd think were important. And they are, but they're not really why you came to therapy. So uh that answers the question I forgot you asked.
0: Well, it's just I I was just curious about what it meant and 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 maybe what you've encountered. I mean, obviously. You know, in, in the general sense, has there been an uptake with it? Because I've sort of never circled around with that. I talked to uh, Madeline Sorkin when it first was proposed and, and went into existence, but um, I've never actually, now that I'm sitting here, I'm like, I'm, I don't know, has, are people using it or is it happening? Are you talking to people and, and what kind of things are coming up?
1: Well, the two answers are, is it happening to the degree that they want it to? And is it happening to the degree that it could? And because they run out of money each year, I assume it's happening to the degree that they want to because that's what they budgeted and that's what they're using. But I don't think it's happening to the degree that it could. And that's why I'm thinking this should be a kind of climber's resilience fund because every climber is looking for strength because the whole thing about climbing is challenge. And nobody who climbs wants to climb incrementally easier climbs. I mean, wouldn't that be easy? Great. It's like I started at 5'6 and I aspire to climb 5'4. And that'd be an interesting thing. And in a sense, you could have do that when you start free soloing. You say, I've got to really do what I'm absolutely certain of. And that's different. Now you're going down instead of up. Or
0: or when you get older. Or when you get
1: older. (laughs) Or when you have more responsibilities. (laughs) Or when you're trying to teach somebody something. (laughs) Anyway, so I, I, I think a lot more could be done. So I'm appealing to people, which is why I reached out to you, which is why I'm talking now, to say that, you know, climbing is like gasoline. And we're sitting around a pan, burning it, warming our hands. Whereas we could put it into an engine and make it fuel and it could take us to the moon. And that process is going to be psychological. And to be more specific, I think climbers could be leaders. Why the fuck are we following people like Joe Biden and Donald Trump? I mean, these people are clowns. And they're there in that role because they've negotiated their situations and they have the support and they're guaranteed. To toe one line or another. Climbers could be Martin Luther King's. Martin Luther King said, I just had, you know, said a lot of things, but the thing I just remember, because it came across my desk, I don't know, yesterday, was he said, uh, if I can't fly, I'll run. And if I can't run, I'll walk. And when I can't run, and when I can't walk, I'll crawl. And climbers will do that, you know. And you have to do that in the responsibility of climbing. If you can't, If you can't walk, you crawl either up or down, you don't actually have a choice because you can't just curl up and wait for it to go away. And uh, we think, oh, wow, Martin Luther King, what a great thing to say. I aspire to that. But as climbers, we do that all the time. And and you think, you know, if you get involved with business and business people or politics or, you know, society, you could say the same thing. Most people, you know, they don't have those high goals and they're satisfied with much less. Like, I, I don't vote. I fucking don't vote. Because I feel by the time I've been given a choice, it's actually somebody else's choice. And I'm just there to rubber stamp one of the two crappy choices. So what I do is I work at it. You know, I'm an activist. You know, I write, I speak, I irritate people. Because that's actually what makes things happen. And then by the time it gets to voting, you're just, you know, whether you want to go through shoot A to the slaughter or through B, shoot B to the slaughter. I choose neither. I mean, you could vote. It's fine. But, you know, the... the, (laughs) The decision has been made before the choices were given you. You have to. Yeah, but there seems that. to
0: be like a there's like a, a problem in there. Okay, and, and I've 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 witnessed it. Not not. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you about the leadership thing, but you know, and maybe this is what you're talking about of 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 overcoming this. But the disconnection from all of that, from the slaughter, if you want to call it that, is is so much a part of why I've found people go climbing and they they talk about climbing in those those terms and the people that dedicate themselves to climbing. I mean, you know, the Fred Becky is still the ultimate sort of dirtbag model of just, you know, disconnect and go climbing mm-hmm. and that's all and that's what you're trying to do and and the rest of it is, you know, it it taints your existence. It it it, it is is a derivative of your experience if you're worried about those things. I mean I know so many climbers that either aren't or only recently even sort of aware of politics. And, you know, now we are confronted with climate change and we're confronted with these things that are actually right in our faces as climbers. But, you know, for the longest time, and I could say this in my 20s, like I was kind of vaguely aware of what was happening in the world because I was freaking climbing and I liked it that way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and maybe that's your push is like, how do we break that barrier to, you know, find the fulfillment, the excitement or whatever, and being a leader. and But you know what I mean? It's just, most climbers would tell you, yeah, it feels gross. I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, get
1: involved in that. Well, you know, shit show. Everybody gets kind these, of a thing, you these know? myths get built up. So, you know, there's right. a myth about, I mean, I haven't, you know, I'm sure Al- Alex Honnold has a myth. I'm not sure whether he's happy with his myth. Um And uh, there were other people that had myths, and Fred Becky has a myth. And I don't know Alex, but I do know, f- know Fred and some of these other people. And I would say the interesting thing about Fred's myth is that Fred's story was not really about climbing. It was about relationship. He had no time for somebody who he didn't have a good relationship with. And if he didn't get along with you and didn't like you and you didn't have a good personal relationship, the climbs didn't work out with him. He wasn't there and he really didn't put anything into it. You know, although his mythology is, as a dirtbag climber, part of that is because people don't recognize, and people didn't recognize even then, the importance of relationship. So he didn't really press it. It either worked or it didn't. He didn't talk about it. And if you read his books, they're about geology, you know, or root finding. They're not about relationship. This is why I mentioned his sexuality was always in question. Like, for most people, relationship works through sexuality, or at least it involves it at some point. For him, it didn't seem to. Uh, sex for him was climbing, which is uh, comically true. That's where he bonded with people. And the bond was really important for him, I feel. And I didn't feel it with other people, except the people I had, you know, close fraternity with. So when you say, a lot of climbers say, to hell with the world, if that's what you said, I put words in your mouth. I understand that.
0: Vaguely, yeah. yeah that's know. that's pretty much yeah, uh, what I hear. Yeah,
1: <laughs> But when you're saying that, it's you're saying... I want my world. I don't want their world. And uh, that works to a point because after that point, unfortunately, you're sharing the same world and you can't get away from it. Mm. I don't know. Maybe you can. I'm not sure. Maybe you shouldn't. I don't know. I'm lost. Well, Therapist, I mean, I, right?
0: I, I like l- literally push that with, you know, talking to Tommy Caldwell, who's, who's um, you know, he's a prominent climber. He's He's got this moment in the sun where he could Use that prominence to get involved, and he is. You know, they 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 go with the access fund, um, talk about climate change. He's been yeah. in senators' offices and everything. Yeah. And I said, yeah, well, what about that for you? Like, what? Why not become a politician? Why not run for something here in Colorado where you could be an activist and be in in the works mm-hmm. and making the changes and. You know, that was basically his reaction
1: was like, no, 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 it's, it's well, like, I, I couldn't, I, I, it's awful. Like, why would I go I agree. There, I know? wouldn't be a politician either. Cause then you got to deal with all the other shit. You know, I want to decide right, what shit I right. deal with. I don't want to have to be responsible right, for right. all your picky little horse shit about, you know, watering your lawn or something. Just a slightly different thing. So if you get into nature and if you get into culture and if you get into the mind, and you start slipping into the deeper realms of what could be there, talking to you, your responsibility for, at some point you might start talking to trees, or you might start talking to the rocks you're climbing on, or you might feel that the mountains actually have something to say to you, and it may not be human, or maybe it's hyperhuman, you know, more about the future of the species than the, you know, uh, subdivision that's being built in the neighborhood. And, and, You know, you could go to psychedelics. I always encourage psychedelics. Uh, You know, after I climbed El Cap the first time, somebody gave me some mescaline, I went around the tour bus in Yosemite Valley, and it was a a really interesting experience to, to be in the presence of tourists and the valley and the mountains all at the same time in a state of mind that was not contained. You know, it was a pure mescaline, so it was an interesting experience. I never really had that with the other mescaline compounds. So... If not leadership, then I would say shamanic. There's something shamanic about climbing. So shamanism to me, aside from its cultural definition, is having a foot in two different worlds and not being entirely limited to either of them. A healer has a a foot in, in the energies and a foot in material reality. And I think a climber has a foot in intense nature and personal reality. And so I would say, yeah, I don't want to be a politician because people don't understand you anyhow. You know, but like Gandhi was a politician, but did anybody really understand him? No, because he wasn't in it just for passing laws. it has got to be something more spiritual. And uh, I think climbing, when you get to a spiritual level, becomes very mysterious and you start hearing voices and the, the voices in the mountains and they're talking to you like parents or something and they're telling you how small you are and how... You know, how short your existence is. I mean, I like walking around in British Columbia. There are all these sort of uh, rock flows, which are interesting because they happened before the dinosaurs. This island, Vancouver Island, was formed before the dinosaurs and the rock flows, the pyroclastic volcanic activity of the Pacific plates. So when I walk on the rocks around here, I'm saying they haven't even seen the dinosaurs yet. And here I am. And what am I to them? Nothing. If a rock has a sentence to utter, it takes ten million years to finish the sentence. And they might not even notice humanity at all. They might just say, Oh, I had a little irritation. Wonder what that was. Oh, it was human beings. They left they lasted a hundred thousand years and they're gone now. And I think this is interesting because you're you have a greater as a rock climber, and even as a mountaineer, you have a greater contact with the rock than almost anyone else ever will. You know its texture, you know its history. You know its response to temperature and water. You know what grows on it, even what eats it. You know the lichen, and uh, it's an opportunity to make a contact. You know, like you say, I had a family. Now things change. Well, the mountains are a family, and are you going to be? Are you going to grow up in that family? Or are you just going to wander around playing with marbles? You know, because there is a consciousness. I think, and maybe I'm wrong, because uh, it is kind of psychotic. But I think it helps me, integrate. And so when you get to grief, it's like, grief? Why are you sad? So the guy died in the mountains. That's what we have to We have to take the choice in order to know. And some of us die. And you don't have to die. Most of the time, you don't have to. You can be like my friend Fred and just turn tail when a cloud goes over the sun, because you'll be back next time. You know, like we say, the the ascents of Mount Everest that are make good copy are the disasters, you know, the into thin air ones. And when people who are really good climb Mount Everest, there's nothing to talk about. It's just almost boring for a a spectator. Nothing happened. Everything went according to plan. Nobody got exhausted. Nobody ran out of oxygen. Nobody ran out of food. Nobody fell in a crevasse. Everything went fine. No story. No one wants to read it. And they don't write those stories. So so the mountaineering gets this reputation of being reckless and risk-laden. But, of course, the best mountaineers are the ones who control that. And so which one are you? Are you the one that needs the risk because you got to write the story of how heroic you are or the one who's so in shape and so fit and so committed that you just want to listen to the mountains and, and you don't have to get hit? I don't know. Maybe that's a big question.
0: You're mentioning psychedelics. Um, it, it, you know, and, and I think I read in there that you're you know, a believer of, of these kind of newer, well, they're not newer. They're ancient actually, but we're, we're moving into this zone where we're more aware in a modern society of of like the um, therapeutic benefits of, again, we're aware of it, of of psychedelics. But what about the, the quantum physics? <laughs> and this may go nowhere, but you have a PhD in quantum physics. It's also this, I think this, I don't know, it's this peering into this other world, a world, again, where so. consequences change and are are very difficult to understand. And also, you know, you're talking about the rocks not noticing humanity. It's like, you know, you get to a, a molecular or beyond molecular yeah. level uh, where it all sort of falls. Any sort of meaning, as we put it, seems to a bit fall apart. So what insights have you gained related to what we've been talking about, um, if any, from that? Or maybe this is a,
1: no, a dead-end
0: inquiry. Yeah.
1: I think there's there's some way to answer that. You could go with physics or hard so any of these hard sciences, different ways. There's what's called normal science, where you approach questions that are established, whose answers will have consequences that are already predicted but aren't known. You know, like engineering new substances, making computers faster. I mean, that's science. You know, ultimately, you work on microscopic aspects, and you sort of wonder, well, you know, what what the fuck does that mean? But you don't wonder about it too much because you're looking for an answer of a certain sort. So that's like normal science. And most people are paid to do that, obviously. They're not just paid to do it. They're trained to do it. They're expected to do it. And they're expected to like doing it, which means things get political and there's questions of money and power and organization and hierarchy. And if you accept all that, you become a scientist and you do the things that scientists are supposed to do and you're rewarded in the usual way with power and prestige and money and security. And it's boring. I mean, it's interesting, like puzzle solving. And there is a little, you do take certain risks, but most people take limited risks. They don't get involved in something that won't produce anything. They usually say, well, I'm going to try to shoot for this answer. And if I can't get it, at least I'll have some research to publish. Okay. So most of the people you meet in science are boring because they're following this model of progress. Which means you've got to be on a path that leads to progress. You don't want to be in one of these dead ends, which uh, the most interesting things lead to. You know the questions no one's can answer. So I had a couple, maybe two, mentors in physics who inspired me. And the first one was from the old school before there was a clear path toward progress. So he was a good friend of Albert Einstein's at a time when there was a lot of chaos and uncertainty, and he was a survivor of that generation. So when I came to him as a teenager asking an endless series of questions, he was perfectly fine with that and said, absolutely, keep doing that. And, and we talked for two days. I don't know what we talked about, but it must have been something like that. And we were both in our element. He was in his late 70s, and I was in my mid-teens. And it was wonderful. And the next guy was uh, a Southern gentleman who has what I've come to think of as the best of Southern gentlemen, which is very opinionated and, you know, a high level of competence. So his opinions are well-founded. And so he came into conflict with all the great knowers of his day, but he was very competent. And so he ended up inventing the laser, where everyone else said it was impossible for various reasons that they were wrong about. But even he didn't know why it was possible, so he did it. And uh, he also invented a lot of other things, the atomic clock and uh, a bunch of discoveries. And uh, so he had this great story. So first, my mentor named Charlie Towns. So first, he was interested uh, because of the lasers, and it, which has to do with electromagnetic spectrum and the emission spectrum and the identity of certain substances, which you can resolve better when you can do the frequency resonances and uh, extract the properties of solids. He was interested in seeing whether there was hydrogen floating around in the universe between stars. The stars have hydrogen, helium, and they burn it, produce it. But what happens in between stars? So he looked, he built telescopes or actually you build instruments that you put on telescopes that could resolve the presence of hydrogen in empty space. And he found it there. He found clouds, Actually, they were clouds of ammonia, I think. I'm not sure what he was looking for. Ammonia or hydrogen? Whichever. Doesn't matter. But then he had a student named uh, Arno Penzias, who said, okay, for my PhD, I'm going to look for clouds of gas in between galaxies. You know, galaxies are big things. They have billions of stars and they're far apart and nobody knows what's between them. So he said, well, gee, maybe there's gas floating around out there. So they looked and he didn't see anything. And so. My teacher, Charlie, said, well, he got a PhD out of it anyway. You know, somehow he, you know, talked about the, the machines you have to build, as an astronomer, you have to build all these machines and calibrate them and do experiments, collect a lot of data. And then Arno Pentias went to uh, Bell Labs after he graduated from, I guess it was UC Berkeley, or maybe it was Caltech, I don't know where Charlie was at the time, and he found another friend Wilson, I think it was. And they decided to continue to look. They had a better telescope. They were going to continue to look between the galaxies for something helium, hydrogen, ammonia. I don't know what they're looking for. Or maybe they look for anything. And again, they found nothing. But there was a problem. Their machine kept having this hum. And, they, you know, hum, well, that usually means there's some short circuit somewhere or something's not working. So they analyzed this thing and couldn't find where the hum was coming from. And they showed it to various people. And somebody had the bright idea that it wasn't from the telescope. It was the Big Bang. It was the echo of the thermal noise from the beginning of the universe. And so Charlie said, well, you know, that was like the most important experiment that anyone ever did. And it was all an accident. They weren't looking for that. They didn't know how to see it. They didn't didn't know it even existed. So you talk about physics and like, I think there's part of that. How does that relate to climbing? Or maybe it's my story is like, there's stuff there that you don't even know about. You can't even imagine. And you won't see it unless you look for something. And how do you look for something you can't imagine? Well, you make it up. So how do you make it up? Well, you just go into fantasy and you just you just dredge up all the shit you can. And you just, you just go hog wild. You know, that's the one thing psychedelics can do is they open up the dams of nonsense. And then you have to swim through it. Uh, it's like an avalanche, except it's not likely to kill you. I mean, really, psychedelics don't kill you. They can fuck you up, but usually that's because you weren't too prepared. It's coming out of your own mind, so it's generally not too toxic, unless you happen to be a person who's harboring a lot of toxic thoughts, which is possible. But, uh, you know, I think as climbers, we're we're already kind of pushing the limits. We're we're willing to look. Does that answer your question at all? Because I could go further.
0: Yeah, yeah. But if you want to go a little further, go further. I have time. Okay,
1: so for me, <laughs> I'm interested in what's real. I don't know why. I guess it's part of trying to get my feet on the ground. And I really appreciate working in psychology with people whose notions of reality are different, and who, for the most part, are more satisfied with answers than I am. So the nice thing about physics for me, and you could say mathematics for in a different, for a different bunch, or whatever question you might fall into is that there are questions that can be stated but not answered. Or at least, and that's the puzzle. How can you well state a question that just can't be answered? Well, you know, you have to say that's the way it is. And there was this big debate between Bohr and Einstein where Einstein said, this doesn't make sense. There's got to be something wrong. And Bohr said, you know, it's here, it's queer, get used to it. Forget it. That's just the way it is. It's telling you it's not a problem. You know, you're 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 hung up. And you look into the history of where those attitudes came from and who those people were, and why they did or didn't prevail in influencing their social groups. And they're all interesting questions and it turns out, at least I think, that Bohr was full of shit and he was just saying what got people back to work, and he was also a very sort of bullying kind of guy. Everybody was afraid of him. Even Richard Feynman was afraid of him and Most people are afraid of Richard Feynman. but And Einstein was a very meek guy who fraternized with fragile people and kept to himself. And I think he asked the right question. And over time, it's been like 100 years now, almost. I think it's turning out Einstein was right, that there is something missing, and it doesn't make sense. And it comes down to the, at least the question that they were talking about was this duality between waves and particles. Things act like particles when you follow them, and when you don't look at them, they act like waves and they act very differently when there's one or the other. And you just say, well, it can't be both because they're completely different, but it is both. It depends on you looking at them. If you look at them, they'll act like particles and behave entirely differently than if you don't look at them. And so you think, oh, well, if I look really carefully or if I look really you know, around the corner or if I'm really clever and I do very little, you know, but no, they know, they know if the amount you look is enough for you to see, then you'll see one thing. And if the amount that you look is just enough so that you can't see, then they behave completely differently. And that makes no fucking sense, except if you look at the consequences of it. The consequence of it is that the world can evolve. If it weren't for that, we'd be living in a mechanical universe which just wound down. But everything that you see in evolution and change is based on that irreconcilable paradox yet it's not enough to do what Bohr did and say it's queer get used to it it's just not enough because it it just violates reality and so now are we fucked up because i that's the most likely thing it's like we can't get it our brain i mean what are our brains our brains are too small you know our brains are built to deal with what we see it's not built to deal with the world on angstrom level it's to deal with the world on centimeter level and that's where it's important. And why would you want a computer that could be, a, a brain that could be a computer for microscopic world when, you know, with a, except within the last 50 years is completely irrelevant. Uh, so and then you wonder, well, gee, you know, if we evolve for another 100,000 years, maybe we'll be able to understand because it will be relevant. But then is it really relevant or is it just a sort of a textbook paradox? I don't know. So it's interesting. You know, doing physics for me is to be confronted with those Unanswerable questions, and you'll be really happy if you can get any progress at all. And this was typical of like doing my PhD, and probably other people doing their PhDs. You go to sleep with this problem in your mind, and you think about it, and you think about it, and you think about it until your mind gets so soft and your sleep gets so present that you think you've solved it. And then you think, oh, what a great idea. And then you fall asleep. You wake up and you can't remember anything, or you do remember it, and it didn't, it made no sense. That's interesting to me. And one of the reasons I like climbing was I got an answer I could remember. Or I had a memory that I could hold on to. And that felt like progress. And that's one of the, you know, the two reasons people don't do fundamental science. One is no one's going to pay you for it because you're not going to get any answers. And the other is that it's disturbing to work on something that goes nowhere. And how do you do that? It's It's like working on a blank wall, trying to climb a blank wall. I mean, who would do that? I remember coming up, I mean, I could never climb 512, but uh, if you can climb 512, then imagine climbing 518, which doesn't exist. But if you were to walk up to a wall that was rated 518, it would look blank and you would get nowhere. And how would you progress on that? Would you just keep sliding? You know, you couldn't get an inch off the ground. And how long would you keep working at that until you said, I don't know, what would you say? uh you, you might say this is a spiritual quest you know just just working at this wall endlessly scratching at this wall is my quest would you be getting any better i don't think so well maybe i don't know i mean people did learn to fly climb harder things and you know now if you climb five well for me 12 you would say oh that must be a handle holy shit i i i can't i can't get anywhere that handle you know, it's a fingernail hole that it's a conception that you can build after a while. But I do like working on things that are difficult. And I should say this too. When I was in college, I had some great teachers. At least I thought they were great because they made everything sensible. I remember my, my quantum mechanics teacher. There was a small group of us. We followed him around like lemmings, taking every course he offered. And, uh, he was very careful. He would orchestrate choreograph his blackboard techniques so that, you know, by the time he'd filled up the blackboard, the answer was sitting right next to where the question was asked. You know, that kind of wonderful blackboard magic. And we'd just eat it up. We'd write it down and we'd transcribe our notes and compare our notes. And in fact, he's now written the best quintessential textbooks. Our notes were eventually published. His name's Dave Griffiths and he works at, or worked, I think he's emeritus, worked at Reed College in uh, wherever Reed is, in Oregon or Washington. I don't know. And now I appreciate how worthless those lectures were. They made sense out of something that didn't make any sense. And they directed you to focus on what made sense. And they left you with an equation that worked, but you still didn't get any sense. And they overlooked the fundamental problems because it was like, it's queer, get used to it. And it was the worst thing for my inspiration because it said, there's no problem here. Look elsewhere. It all works out. You just have to accept it. And he had the perfect explanation. He had all the dots, all the I's dots and in the T's crossed. He led you in the perfect, perfect shoot down to your own intellectual destruction. And oh, back, you know, oh, I should cut my nose to the grindstone and do the work that I'm paid for and uh, invent a better transistor. And I thought that was, you know, I think that's too bad because there is something to be gained by sitting in front of that 512. And so that's what physics is to me. And I've gotten back to reading it again. And it helps now to recognize where the answers are not, because you'll find people heralding. It's like the Life of Brian, the the movie Life of Brian. I remember there's a scene where there's this whole row of prophets all preaching in the marketplace. And, you know, each group would throw tomatoes at the other prophet that's what science is like there's a bunch of people telling you how it works and you can line up reading one guy's textbook or the other guy's textbook and they're all false prophets every science is wrong ultimately you know that that's the nature of science if it stopped having somewhere to go it would die it just become engineering not to say anything bad about engineering but you know what i mean it would become finished and it it's not that nature so you know what's climbing Is it ever finished? Oh, for me, it was finished. I don't want to go on. I want to go elsewhere. No, nothing against climbing. It's just that I want other rewards and other questions and other answers. So I don't know. I've made it sound like physics and science uh, and climbing is similar. And, you know, there are a lot of climbers who are scientists, so (laughs) maybe it is.
0: What about you? I'm I'm thinking about just our conversation. You know, just what you said about um, that sometimes you said, you know, there was this like heroin addict nature to something like someone you know as i said colin haley free soloed, or not free solo he soloed a lot of it free solo he soloed the seratorian winter this winter and and it's like i don't know so, some part of my brain and i'm a romantic and i love the romance of climbing and and so i'm like well he he's he's the guy that's asking the he's going further he's like you know it's settled you can't you can't solo seratorian winter mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. You know, it was settled. You can't climb Pikes Peak ever. You know now there's a road to the Mm. top of it. You know, it's settled that El Cap will never be free soloed. Like, Mm. so I I feel like you know, they to their possible destruction. These people are, if you want to, if we want to keep this analogy going or this metaphor going, like that, that's who they are. They are they're they're going past what we've decided or what the prophets have decided has been settled. In the history of climbing yeah. is such that, yeah. you know, it was settled. This is how we do things. It was settled that this could never be climbed and it just keeps getting climbed again. And like you were saying, well, 518 may never exist, but you know, we're getting close and we decide what it is. Certainly it's a, it's an arbitrary thing that comes out of a, a of a human judgment, but anything at the end of bouldering right now, the highest grades of bouldering, there's no one from your generation that would have said that was ever possible absolutely and yet yeah so it's so the metaphor is interesting that there's you know the false prophets kind of thing fits with my mind and and we tend to try to look at climbing sort of scientifically that way we put a grading system on it we think we both argue that the grades are arbitrary and the grades are something important and solid and that they're subjective and that they're objective and you know so these debates i can, i think come from sort of a same Impetus to want things in a row and ways to quantify and qualify and and move on and and yet at our hearts we've been talking about this sort of the quantum physics of things the things that don't make sense and but we know them to be true so 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 to speak um, I don't know I'm just like riffing on on mostly the ideas that you well, put I out there I think you
1: have to I I think that's where imagination yeah. comes from I was inspired mm-hmm. by the stories of John Gill who was very Methodical and analytical about approaching what couldn't be done. Right. I mean, he stood at Mm -hmm. the base of those things at the Black Hills, which no one could do. And he had already decided that he was going to forego listening to anybody else. He was going to climb these things solo as boulder problems. And he was going to solve them himself. And he, you know, built machines to build his strength. Now we know how to work up to. Finger pull-ups. You know, you use surgical tubing to slowly put more weight on your hands, and so forth. And and then there's a whole technique, a gym technique. And and, but I mean, he he sort of pioneered that. He turns it into a study. You know, how to climb. This might have been a time when five ten was the hardest people climbed, and they really thought that was. You know, they they could have done more. You'd think. I mean, they were climbing Clutter Shoes, which may not have had the best rubber. But now people climb five ten at the starting gate almost partly because in the gym at least they see where the footholds are and they don't look at these things and they if they were to be shown those things on a real cliff they'd say no way but in the gym you can't say no way cuz that's obviously the way uh, so john gill looked at these things and i don't know what he thought he thought maybe maybe if i was stronger or or my feet would get your feet got to get strong too you know story of climbing shoes is they're not comfortable uh and then there's issues of flexibility and balance and dynamism and stuff which you can work at so at whatever your level is you know when we we stopped at basically 511 but of course like I said we always you know led on site and there's something about that that's attractive that we didn't really talk about that's different from the risk it's the it's the moving forward into the unknown in a way that only makes difference for you how could anyone else care whether you could get up this move or not how could you even write about it and make it sound dramatic I don't think you could it's a totally personal experience, totally. And so that's, to me, what's happening. You are settling into or admitting that you're going to have a totally personal, significant experience that can never be shared, never be understood, and that's going to be important. That's unusual, you know? It's You know, you try to turn into a spectator sport, like with climbing competitions, but I don't think they hit the spot for me. I always wonder, like, how could a climber actually climb just to win? I don't know. It's different. I mean, maybe there are many different mindsets. Maybe that's enough to motivate somebody to, to go up a grade and, and work endlessly at fingertip push, pull-ups just to win.
0: I, I've just trained myself to think of it as two different things. I mean, the are indoor climbing, competition climbing, they have the word climbing in them, but I just think of them as, as two different things. It's it's interesting too because we fall back on these archetypes these these stories. Even what you said, you you set up these two giants. You know, there's there's Bohr, there's there's Einstein, and within your story was this conflict and this like, you know, these two personalities and going at these two different things and sort of who won in in a sense. It's like our tendency is to do that even with science and like oh yeah, science is the most boring thing, but there's so many stories of you know scientists where their inqu- inquiry, you know, reaches a tragic downfall or, or they, you know, I mean, Turing was a guy who it didn't have anything necessary to do with his science, but you know, it was a tragic life and, and never probably met his potential. And then people who simply go insane or, you know, whatever, die penniless, all these different things. It's, I just, in, in climbing is the same way. We, we want to have these seekers and, and these, these people who, as we're sort of toiling on the bottom of the cliff, they're they're up there inspiring us on the top of the cliff, so to speak. Or you know, it's been a history of that probing into these places where I couldn't go. I couldn't go up, serratory period. Let alone in winter, winter, let alone by myself. But when I go climbing and challenge myself, I feel like I have a kinship with that person and a and and at least a pinpoint view into their grand world, so to speak. Um where I can just I can just peek in there, but I haven't experienced it altogether, but but I would, you know, I would like tear it apart and, and run through the hole if I could.
1: So uh Alex Honnold is a hero because he climbed El Cap 3 Solo. And I remember watching the movie and a number of people who were filming it said, I can't watch it. Because mm-hmm. I don't want to see him fall out of the frame of my camera. So what if he fell out of the frame of the camera? We wouldn't be talking about him today. We'd be right. talking about the next hero who did whatever the next great thing was. But we wouldn't be talking about Alice Honnold who didn't do it. And I think... I, I kind of have like a... yeah. Well, I, I just think it's we right. should have. I mean, it's not yeah. fair.
0: Yeah. I, I have like a little problem with hero. And I know that's the way they're framed within the media. But for me personally, I I admire him, right? I don't. But hero kind of kind of doesn't quite fit in my estimation of these people. I, I almost think of like... Wait a
1: minute. You're saying you don't guess, think of them as heroes or people shouldn't think of yeah. them as heroes?
0: Uh, a little bit of both, I think. Yeah. It, it's hero- heroism. And maybe we're just on a semantic problem because I, I do have a, this like, and it's kind of within the hero archetype, this idea of a champion, of of a person that you know we've nominated to go out and risk their life on our behalf in a sense, in this weird way, yeah. like, and they're fine with it, we're fine with it, but we also know that the dragon will likely, and has before, uh, you know, burn them to a crisp, and we've had to find a new one, so to speak, if yeah, well, you this want is, to go these, down that these tail. are typical myths I'm yeah. thinking of. Right, yeah, totally.
1: Um, I'm thinking of, oh, I just forgot who I was thinking of. I've got two things I want to say. Well, one is, because of my son who's 12, I was thinking of the Bilbo Baggins. Oh no, let me go back to the first one because I just remembered Indiana Jones. Right, so you know in the beginning of those movies, he's seen as a teacher in a classroom, and all the girls are infatuated with him. Um, you can even think of the Beatles and Beatlemania, how a hero. And then you know, were they? They became the Beatles became famous because of their crappy music, and then once they were famous, they started making good music. Heroes, in quotes. And Indiana Jones, who was a fictitious, but there were other people like Humboldt. Alexander von Humboldt was kind of the best actual Indiana Jones. He had that adventurer, a heroic perspective in the public eye, and in reality, he was an explorer. And, you know, there are Perry and the other people who, Edmundson and, you know, polar explorers who did equally ridiculous things and were lionized for achieving. Essentially, nothing. I mean, what did they do? They didn't they get better boats. They didn't better coats. They didn't do anything, as far as I can see. Um, you know, and so you could say, well, also, you know, what's what's uh, what's so great about climbing Cerotori in the winter? Well, probably nothing, actually. Um, no, uh,
0: yeah, it's it's a it's an intangible thing.
1: And, uh, and yeah, so, uh, so back to Bilbo <laughs> no. Baggins. You know, the the crux of Bilbo Baggins is his conversation with the dragon, in my mind. You know, that's where the two, you know, the smallest and the biggest come together. And that's almost transcendental how they relate to each other. The fact that they can relate to each other at all, and how it's spun, and how we take it, and how it ends up, you know, the dragon dies, and the little ant guy prevails. And that's interesting. Flip. Because mostly the hero stories end with the hero on top, and us little guys just wondering, you know, it's, we'll never get there. So, I, I mean, it gets back to mythology or our own mythology. Mm-hmm. And I think as climbers, mm-hmm. we're part of our own mythology, a little more than most people. Oh,
0: yeah. We're deep in it, yeah. I think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's all, yeah, we drive home from from a day of sport climbing and drenched in our own
1: mythology about how great we are, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> all right. So I'm just saying, do something with it, you know? Don't let it go to waste because you are great. You know, it's not just a fantasy. You really did confront the dragon and survive. And even if it's 518 and you never made it one inch off the wall, just the idea that you're not satisfied with everything that is and you want to try to imagine something more. And okay if you fail. I mean, that's why I'm getting back to physics. It's okay if I fail. I and mean, you have to feel it's okay if you fail. Otherwise, you'll never really engage with the most important impossible problems
0: alright folks thanks for listening and thanks to Lincoln for connecting man I don't know the section on on quantum physics I had to edit that a few times because I was like I don't even know if I know what's going on in here should I take that out is that meaningful I don't know anyhow maybe go back and listen again (laughs) All right, what I failed to mention in the intro is that Lincoln is also the author of six books. These books are all available at his website, mindstrengthbalance.com, as well as links to his therapy. Uh, There's podcasts over there. There's videos uh, full of stuff, a lot of it geared at trying to help. So if you felt like that was your style of therapist and you're looking for something like that, Get in touch. Lincoln suggested his book, Becoming Lucid, Self-Awareness in Sleeping and Waking Life is maybe the best place to start if you want to read one of his books. Yeah, so check it all out at mindstrengthbalance.com. We could all use a little mind strength balance, couldn't we? All right, I hope you're balancing your life better than I am. I feel like I haven't climbed enough lately. I hope you are. And of course, check your knots. That's my hypnotherapy. I'm in your mind, I hope. Every time you pick up a rope, I don't care if you're climbing, you're stringing up your hammock, or hanging an elk you just shot. Check your knots. I want to be that voice that's always there. Check your knots. Check your Do, knots. It. Check Do it. it. Check them again. Check them again. I'm, influencing, I'm you influencing you to check your knots. Check your knots. I'm a knot fluencer. 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 fluencer.